everyone here today. There are a lot of faces that I've never seen before, and that's amazing. So thank you for coming out. Everyone I see on every Sunday and everyone I haven't seen before. Like I said, I'm Trevor Hallberg, or like was said before I came up here. Uh, this is my wife, Angie. Next to me, our daughter, Kylie. She's almost three. My brother, Casey, and his wife, Ellie. We moved out here two years ago to go to dental school, as Glenn talked about. Casey and I are in dental school here. We're about two years done. Um, I want to give you a little bit about my story before we get into this message today. So I grew up in a family of four, my brother, my mother, and my father. And we lived in a very close-knit family. We got all the love and support that we needed from each other. Uh, we were not religious. We went to church, I think I can remember two times that we went, more out of curiosity than my brother and I had. My parents were willing to support us in, in religion or in church if we decided to do that. But we went a couple times, and, and I found that it really wasn't for me. And as I got a little bit older, um, I got very into math and science. I studied engineering in college, um, now I'm dental school, so I've taken a lot of science. And growing up through high school and, and through college, I developed um, an atheist perspective, and I was about as hardcore of an atheist as you could find, at least that's what I thought. So um, I was as skeptical as, as anyone could be. Uh, it got to the point where once I would have an initial conversation about religion with people, we really stopped having conversations about it. Um, there wasn't a, a pro-religious argument that I could find that I couldn't poke a hole in, that I couldn't defend from an atheist perspective. Um, and when I married my wife, she was a Christian and I was an atheist, we figured out that we could make this work if we didn't talk about religion. So it was something that after we got married, for the first few years, we, we didn't even talk about. Um, and I share all this with you. Um, just to give you some background, and I want to just tell you that I, I didn't believe in a God. If you don't know what atheism is, it's, it's not believing in a God. And one of the biggest problems that I had was, how could there be so many different religion out, religions out there? There are so many different gods. How is it possible for one religion? How could I be a Christian and say that someone else's God is wrong? For me, that was just a base argument as an atheist that, that meant that religion was just something man-made, and, and we created this, but we don't really need this. Um, and I believe it was God versus science, definitely not God and science. So today's Sunday, two days ago, if my math is right, it was Friday. <laughs> Three years ago from last Friday, I woke up and I was an atheist. I was this person that I described to you just now. Um, and when I went to bed that night, I went to bed believing in a God, believing in a creator. And I'm going to wow. share a little bit of a story with you. And my message is going to be um, really what, what changed my life and what changed me from an atheist to... To, um, believing in God. This should only take about four hours, so I hope. <laughs> no more than two and a half. No more than two and a half. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, very flattering. Very flattering. So, you know, my name is Ignatius, and I'll also share a little, hopefully just a few minutes about my background. Um, so one thing you should know about me is I, I love science. I've, I've loved science since the fifth grade when I first learned about the solar system. I remember learning about, you know, stars, planets, comets, asteroids, everything. Pretty much almost, almost a lot of things. We learn later not everything, but just a lot of things in space. And I'm so fascinated that 
we could learn about this world we were in. I was so driven by that, and I also, I also love mathematics because in math you solve a problem, and it's either right or wrong. It's not like a lot of interpretation you have to do, anything like that. I like the definitiveness of math. So that fascination carried me through grade school, and I ended up going deeper and deeper into science and trusting the answers science provided. Uh, so naturally, in high school, I, be, I started becoming actually skeptical of answers provided by religion and, and from, from those individuals with a creationist background. Uh, I, I hung around a crowd in high school who were definitely atheists. I wasn't exactly atheist, but I was more agnostic, for sure, just questioning a lot of, like, God, I don't think God could, it could exist because uh, my favorite person, my favorite scientist in the world was Stephen Hawking. And I loved his grand unifying theory, his pursuit of that. He said eventually that science would be able to explain everything. And I was, I believed that. I believed that. Mm -hmm. So I, I committed hardcore. I actually, you know, kept this from my, my family. I know they're going to hear this, but I kept this from them because um, I, I grew up Baptist. But, uh, <laughs> but I committed. I committed all the way. I was like, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I went into college, um, even before going to college, sophomore year of high school, I knew I wanted to major in physics. I wanted to go all the way. So I, um, to sum up some things, I, I have a Bachelor of Science in Physics with a mathematics minor, and now I have a master's in statistics. And I, I wanted to go all the way. I really wanted to go all the way, kind of following Stephen Hawking's footsteps to, to find the, the theory of everything, pretty much, which would make God unnecessary. Um, and I'll spare a lot of details about my college life and that because got me from the, how I was back then to here. But I do hope that what we present today will be compelling uh, to people who are skeptical because I, I get it. I definitely was in that. I, I thought that, okay, we have quantum theory now. We have the standard model, which is able to predict any type of subatomic particle you could think of um, that exists in the universe. We, we have all these these charts and these formulas right now. Why do we need God? I thought it was incomprehensible to believe in like creation and things like that. But um, as Trevor said, this, this message is about God and science. And um, I, I know just pretty much, I definitely get what you were thinking if you're highly skeptical out there, thinking that God should not be anywhere near the word science. But I hope that what we present, which is actual scientific evidence with a ton of physics, we're going to go real deep today. Um, I hope it will help you see that a belief in God, a belief in a creator, a belief in something that created this universe isn't so outrageous. It's actually very, very understandable and reasonable, hopefully with the evidence we present today. And also for those who are are religious, those who are believers out there, I hope that you can have a greater appreciation for science. Because in our current day and age, science does a lot for us. Science is how we have this projector and our yeah. cell phones and Netflix and all these things. Um, so I hope, <laughs> yeah, I hope you can just have appreciation for science um, and the value in it. Because it also shows how special this universe is and that it points to a designer. My part is going to be presenting a teleological argument on the design of the universe, that this universe may not have just happened by chance. It might be it's highly improbable that it did. Yes. So on that note, I will lead it to Trevor, and we'll get started. Amen.
By show of hands, does anyone know what this image is? Anyone? One? Two? By a show of hands, how many people think this might be a painting? How about a picture? Photo? And the rest of you don't know, don't care? I thought this was a painting for sure. There's no way I thought this was a photo. Turns out this is a photo taken by the Hubble telescope of the Carina Nebula, which is a constellation of stars 7,500 light years from Earth. That's a one with 16 zeros after it. Don't ask me what that number is. That's how many miles away it is from us right now. Just to explain the vastness of the universe, sometimes it's really easy to, to get lost on our own little lives here, but the universe is huge and it's massive. Um, Carina Nebula. That's not good. Science. Science. <laughs> I don't know if I did that or what. It's a possibility. <laughs> That's okay. In a minute, there's going to be a slide that have two books that show up. I'll talk about those books for a minute. Um, these two books were very important in my journey from atheist to where I am now. The first one is called The Case for a Creator. There it is by Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel was an atheist who set out to disprove Christianity. And in so doing, it wasn't for this book, it was his first book. I think this is his second. He became a Christian in that process of trying to disprove, trying to disprove Christianity. The second one, faith, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't know much about Norman Geisler, but Frank Turek is a Christian who travels around from college to college, giving presentations similar to ours, talking about God and religion, um, God and science, uh, and introducing that to, to the college campuses that, that honestly need it today. So if you have any questions after this message or if this is inspiring at all to you, we wanted to direct you to these two books. We're barely going to touch on the bigger topics presented in these books, but there's a lot more information that's out there um, that can really change your life if you want to take the time to do it. So as I started preparing for this message, I was curious... How many people, or what's the percentage of people in the United States that are atheists? How many are non-religious? And I was really surprised to find that Maine is number two for non-religious states in the United States. This is saying that 51% of the people in this state don't believe in God. So whether you sit here and, and you believe in a God, or you're among this 51% that doesn't believe in God like I was, this is important information to have because every other person that you're going to meet on the street, statistically here in Portland is going to be an atheist. Now, I was planning on getting up here and telling all of you that this message is for everyone. And yesterday morning, I decided, while I was eating breakfast with my daughter, who I showed a picture of, she's almost three, I decided that she would be my audience for the morning, and I was going to practice with her. So she was eating her cereal, and I was sitting on the other side of the table, and I got to about slide three. It might have even been this slide. I'm not sure. I got to it, and she set her spoon down in her bowl, and she looked at me and said, Dad, no, go away. <laughs> this apparently isn't for everyone, but if you're above the age of three and you're not my daughter, I think this is important for you. Uh, now, I believe that every person has a spiritual religious standpoint. It may be that you're atheist and you don't believe in a God, but that's still a standpoint. It may be that you believe in the Christian God, or it may be that you believe in another God. Um, but regardless, you have a standpoint. And if you don't remember anything from what I tell you today, if you're a note taker, write this down. 
um, otherwise ingrained in your mind. I want you to remember one question that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you now, and I'm going to ask you at the end of the presentation, and I hope you ask yourself again when we get done. Are you absolutely convinced that what you believe is true? I'm going to say that again. Are you absolutely convinced that what you believe is true? If you're an atheist, have you looked at the evidence suggesting that there's a God? And if you believe in a God, have you looked at the evidence suggesting that there is or isn't a God? And if you believe in the Christian God, why not Buddha? Why not Allah? Or why not one of the other thousands of gods that are out there to believe in? These are important questions that if you don't answer and if you're wrong about, they can be disastrous if you consider eternal life and heaven and hell and all of those things. So are you convinced that what you believe is true? Now, these three questions up here today are the three questions that I needed to get answered to get from where I was to where I am. When I set out to figure out if I thought there was a truth beyond atheism, um, I honestly didn't think that one day I'd be standing up here or three years later I'd be standing up here and telling you that I'm no longer an atheist. I was, like I said, I was as much of an atheist as anyone I've ever met, and I did not expect for that to change. So the first question is, is there a creator? I think this is the most important. You can't, you can't really have a stance on religion or spirituality unless you have this question answered. Second, is the Christian God the true God or any other God that you, that you want to answer that question to? And is Jesus and what he did true? Now, I believe all of, that there is evidence for all three of these, and you can find the answers to these questions. It just takes some, some looking into it. Um, and unfortunately, we are not going to touch on the bottom two today. The only one we're going to touch on is the first one. Is there a creator? And before we get too far into this, I want to say a couple more things. About a month and a half ago, we had a visiting pastor from a Boston church, Kevin Miller. He came up here and gave an awesome sermon, and he shared his journey to faith. And he said from the day that he got asked if he could study the Bible to the day that he got baptized to be a Christian was seven days. Tuesday to Tuesday is what he said. That was not my journey. It was not seven days. When I decided that I was going to try to answer these questions, someone asked me if I wanted to study a Bible, and I said, sure. And I sat down, and they asked me, I think they told me to go to, like, Matthew 1.13 or something. And in my head, I'm thinking, I knew a guy named Matthew once, and 1.13, is that like 113? I don't, I don't I didn't know anything about the Bible. So I sat down with them, and they started asking me questions about what I believed the Bible was saying. And I closed the Bible, and I said, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't even believe the Bible. Uh, how do I know that the Bible is not just a book that a couple of authors or maybe even one author put together and, and now we're just reading it and now there just happens to be a religion based on this Bible? So that's a level of skepticism that, that I was dealing with. And the next thing I want to do before we get too far into this is just tell you what caused me to pursue trying to answer this first question. So to go from a skeptical atheist to trying to see if there's a creator out there is actually a decent shift to make, and it's, um, it could be a challenging one. And to be honest with you, I had considered the fact that maybe I was wrong as an atheist, and maybe there is a God, maybe, maybe there is a heaven and a hell, and by not getting this question answered, um, I might go to hell. But when my wife became pregnant with our daughter, um, I came to the realization that it's no longer just about me. If I, if I leave my son or my daughter to hell because I didn't take the time for whatever reason because I was arrogant or lazy or prideful to try to answer this question. That's something that I couldn't live with. So that is why I, I made the commitment to try to answer these questions, but fully knowing that I did not think that I was going to change my, my opinion. 
So let's get into this. There are a lot of different ways that we can answer, is there a creator, from a science perspective. And it pains me to tell you that we are not going to touch on any of the ones in gray again. We are just focusing on the top two. And it pains me because evolution and the Stanley Miller experiment are two of the three, those two including the Big Bang, that I used as an atheist to convince people that there is no God. But those are... This pale in comparison to the first two that we're going to get into. Maybe. Here we go with science again. There we go. Oh. Oh. Ah, the no input argument. Thank you, Tim. So the Kalam cosmological argument, what is that? There are three simple statements in this argument, and we're going to prove that each one of them is true. And the way this works is sort of like a math proof, if there are any math nerds out there. If any of them are are not true, if we can prove that there's an exception to any one of these rules, then this whole argument is false. But if we can't do that, if we can prove that this argument is true, this is going to show us one way that we can prove that there is a creator to this universe. So the first one is, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Not everyone looked, but most of you did look. So why did I have my wife drop a cooking pan and a baking sheet in the middle of the church? So this is to tell you that things don't pop into existence. When you heard that sound, most of you turned around to see what caused it. Not very many of you, as enthralling as this message is, just sat here and continued to look at me. So this is saying that whatever begins to exist has a cause. What this isn't saying is that everything has a cause. I want to make sure you, you understand that. This is not saying that everything has a cause. This is just saying that if we can show that something has a beginning, it has a cause to it, just like that sound had when Angie dropped that, that pan on the ground. So premise number two, the universe began to exist. Again, there are a lot of ways we can go into this. There's a mathematical way to prove that the universe had a beginning. There's a philosophical way. We're not going to get into either of those. There are several ways through science we can do it as well. But I'm going to focus on the one that was the most profound to me. Now, back in 1929, Edwin Hubble was looking through his telescope, and he was looking at constellations and stars and galaxies <laughs> apart from our own. And what he found when he was looking through his telescope was he would find galaxies outside of our own, so galaxies outside of the Milky Way galaxy, and he saw them moving away from us. And he saw galaxies that were farther and farther away from other galaxies moving away even faster. And he was able to determine this. When, when things move away from you in space, when you're looking through a telescope, it leaves a red streak behind you, or behind it. So he saw these galaxies moving away with a wet red streak behind them. And this showed that along with, you can combine that with Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, those prove that the universe is indeed expanding. So this is sort of like an ice cream cone. As, as time goes on and those galaxies move farther and farther away from us, the universe expands, we get farther and farther away from the point of the ice cream cone. And that in itself actually isn't what's so important here. It's when we go back the other way, when we go back from where we came from, go back in time, that ice cream cone shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until it reaches a certain point. And that point, they call a singularity, and that point is the beginning of the universe. 
And that point is actually what they call the Big Bang. So the Big Bang. I didn't know I was going to get an intro on Stephen Hawking, so I'm not going to do too much on him, except for just to reiterate that he was, he actually passed away, I think less than a month ago, very end of March. Uh, but he was a leading scientist, definitely in this day and age, arguably one of the greatest scientists ever to live. Um, and he was an atheist, and he said two interesting quotes. The first one is that almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. I remember this is coming from an atheist. This is including atheists. This includes people of, of faith, regardless of what the faith is. It's, it's essentially common knowledge now that the Big Bang did exist. And he also said that so long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. Now, it's interesting that he said this because he's an atheist, and he actually spent a good chunk of his life trying to figure out a way that the Big Bang could exist, but we could prove, essentially, that there wasn't a creator. So we could prove that it didn't have a beginning. He wasn't successful in doing this, um, so we're stuck with the Big Bang and there being a cause for it. So let's review where we've come from. The first premise was whatever begins to exist has a cause. The second is the universe began to exist. When we combine those two, we get therefore the universe has a cause. This in itself doesn't seem extremely profound, at least it didn't to me. But I want to share a little bit more of my story and why I have a Southwest airplane up on the screen. <laughs> I was flying from, uh, it was actually St. Paul, Minnesota to Phoenix, Arizona three years ago, Friday. I was on my way to play in a hockey tournament in Arizona that I had gone to every year. Um, I think my brother played in that one as well. And I was along my journey of, of trying to answer that question, is there, is there a creator? And I was actually reading that first book, The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. And on the flight, I was reading for the first time this argument, the Kalam argument. And I got to the first premise, and I bet I read that seven, eight, nine, ten times, trying to poke a hole in that first premise with what I knew, um, and I was not able to do it. It was the first time that I'd never been able to poke a hole in a religious argument or an argument that I knew was going to end up being a religious argument. I got to the second one. I bet I read that five or six times. Same thing. I just could not, could not poke a hole in this argument. And I got to this third one and wasn't overwhelmed when I first read what the third one was. Um, but then when I read what I'm about to share with you, that's when my life changed forever. So a little disclaimer and a little warning. This stuff is, is hard to understand, and um, I still wrestle with it at times. We are, live in a universe that is governed by certain scientific laws, and Iggy will probably get into some of those. Um, but really, when you consider things that are outside of our universe, outside of those laws that we, that we know and live by, um, it's very hard sometimes to contemplate those and to understand what it is, and really we'll never truly understand it. Um, the next thing I want to say is if there's anyone in here who is an atheist and who um, shares a journey like I did, if you get to the point where you make a switch from not believing in a creator to all of a sudden believing that there is a creator, that's actually a really big change. As an atheist, you, you sort of create your own world, like create your own storybook. Um, you, without a creator, you kind of set the moral standard and you set... If you, for me personally, I believed in heaven and hell even though I didn't believe in a God. I just set that moral standard right below myself so 
although I knew I had problems and I sinned, um, I was still overall a pretty good person, so I was going to go to heaven, at least the heaven that I created. And that's, um, I think that's common for atheists to do that, to, um, to, to, to make their own world. And when all of a sudden you realize that there is a creator, there is a God, and you're not in control, um, that can actually be very, very tough to handle. So I just wanted to, to share that with you as well. So let's look at this. So we are in a universe that is governed by time, space, and matter. Things are born, everything ages, and everything dies. Um, our universe is governed by space. Um, that's outer space. That's the universe. That, that's, that's everything. That is space. And matter is whatever's in that space. That's the galaxies. That's the planets. That's me. That's you. That's the pan that Angie dropped on the ground. That's, that's the matter. So we have this universe that is time, space, and matter. That's what operates it. So if you are a cause of this universe, you cannot be those things. If I am going to create the very first cake, I cannot be a cake. You understand? That just doesn't make sense. Someone, there, something already made me if I'm a cake. So if we have time, space, and matter, the cause of time, space, and matter must be timeless. If you are timeless, you are beginningless. And if you are beginningless, you are uncaused. Our very first argument was whatever begins to exist has a cause. If you do not have a beginning, you therefore do not need to have a cause. We are timeless beginningless, immaterial, and personal. Personal because you have to have the ability to create or want to create a universe like we have. The only thing we can compare that to is a mind. Um, in, our, in our universe, you have to have a mind, really, in order to be able to create anything. So timeless, beginningless, spaceless, immaterial, personal cause of the universe. That is what we say when we say there's a creator of this universe, and that's what we mean by God. Now, what this is not saying is this is the Christian God. Uh, this argument has nothing to do with which religion is truth, if indeed one is true. Those are um, questions that we hope to get to later at a, at a different time, but those are ones that we're not going to answer today. But this particular argument simply is to show you that there is a creator, and this is why. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Iggy. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. Um, so yes, now that Trevor kind of described the basis for thing that the universe was created, uh, in, my, in this second half of the, the lesson, it will be more on now that the universe is created, now what? Is it, are we just here by chance? Is it just randomly particles moving around to get to where we are now? Or is there a design involved in this? So this is presented as a teleological argument. And before we dive in, we have to understand what this means. So teleological, that's the word. Some people might know what that is, actually. But uh, if not, uh, both words come from the Greek. Uh, telos uh, means end, purpose, a goal. We combine that with the Greek word logos, which means reason, and on the scope of the universe. Pretty much this argument is to kind of suggest that there's some sort of design in the universe, that the universe was created with a purpose. We're here now, not randomly, but per by purpose. All the arguments that we're going to talk about today point to how the universe is, oh, yay, works. Um, pretty much, it stems in this basic element. It's like every design has a designer. The universe has complex design, therefore, it was designed, pretty much. And in many scopes, as Trevor said, like, that mind, whatever designed this, we're going to 
talk that it's the intelligent designer we're going to call God in this. And what we're going to do is pretty much, I'll just present a few of the uh, basic pre-anthropic arguments for this. Because um, this has been on people's hearts since ancient times. Um, it goes back to the, like Greece and Rome. Like Plato even suggested, he suggested, although you know he didn't think like Christianity or anything like that wasn't there, he thought that this universe must have a cosmic creator, a cosmic craftsman he used, who brought the materials together in a special way. Cicero, who's a Roman guy, uh, a Roman lawyer apparently, um, he said that the divine power can be found in the principles of reason that pervades the whole of nature, that there's principles in nature. Um, but the very first kind of person to really present a really uh, com more compl complex argument to this is St. Thomas Aquinas uh, in the 13th century in his fifth argument. Pretty much he had four or five arguments to, to try to attempt to prove the existence of God. The fourth, four arguments dealt with the creation part that Trevor touched on. The fifth one was more about his design. And in this, I'll just sum it up briefly. He said that this universe, everything in the natural world is governed by natural laws. And there is filled with inanimate objects that won't find their purpose unless someone intelligent acts on that object. A common analogy he used was the archer and arrow analogy, which suggested that the arrow, it would out, if not acted on by anyone, would just stay on the ground. It would not reach the target. To get to that target, it took an archer, someone to, to, to shoot it. And uh, so that was this argument. And then one of the most popular ones used relatively is kind of Paley, William Paley's argument, the watchmaker analogy. A lot of us know what that is. It's pretty much saying if you, in the field, you find this really complex uh, watch on the ground, you would suggest, you would think that it wasn't just there naturally. It just didn't like grow out of the ground and become that way. Uh, and by thinking of that, you pretty much simply suggested that, extrapolating that to the, the whole of the world, that this world is complex, that this world is complex, has a lot of moving parts. Therefore, it was created by something intelligent. And he expanded that to the whole of the universe. Um, I quickly present these, but I definitely want to um, play, give a, a, I want to be fair, so I definitely need to present the criticisms involved with these arguments. And there are, are a ton. Um, uh, uh, so, I mean, there's so many. Going back to, well, yeah, going back to pre-Renaissance period, even currently, uh, a lot of people, a lot of things with these analogies, these analogies are kind of the more popular ones that were around at the time. And in these analogies, many people had questions, many atheists, for sure, theologians even. Uh, one, that there's no evidence that the universe needs a designer. Um, they suggested that everything happened naturally. Everything came into existence because it could. David Hume is this guy. Was he Swedish? Oh, I, to, I forgot. I'm sorry. But uh, he suggested the Epicurean hypothesis to suggest that the universe is here because it could be here. It, there's infinite possibilities before the Big Bang, and now we're here because we could. Particles moved around randomly, and then they calmed down and condensed, coalesced, and now we're here. Uh, and just involved the system that, systems that we see evolved naturally. So there's design, doesn't suggest a designer. 
Um, there's so many. A, a, a huge one that even I thought of when I was researching this was that a lot of these analogies are pure analogies, not much scientific basis for these. Uh, there's there's so many criticisms. Of course, you know Richard Dawkins is here. He he, the 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 popular atheist of the time right now. He wrote the book The Blind Watchmaker, um, pretty much going against what I just you know suggested. That no, this this there's no there's no designer. There's this universe is here is is common. There's no purpose to it. Uh, it's just pitiless indifference. He used um, even Stephen Hawking's and. Richard Dawkins and many scientists, I don't have it up there, but they suggested that, um, that this universe pretty much follows the, the mediocrity principle, which means that this universe is very ordinary, they suggested, that this Earth is ordinary, is orbiting an ordinary star in an ordinary solar system in an ordinary galaxy, which is in a common part of the universe, just like that. He just said like, there's nothing special. They really took that out of it. Um, and then there's so more. There's suggestions that, uh, <laughs> well, we won't get into the scope of morality, but even uh, one person said the universe, the designer must be evil <laughs> or something like that. There's just so many just criticisms. Like Stephen Hawking wrote a book in 2010 called A Grand Design that I almost read through. I didn't read through all of it back then, but I definitely saw the quote that he says, like, we're getting to the point where all the laws of physics is making God unnecessary. And in that time, he definitely declared, everyone was kind of wondering, like, Stephen Hawking, are you an atheist or anything like that? He clearly said he's an atheist at that point, because um, we thought we were getting close. But uh, yeah, so I present all this as kind of like a downer. Um, but yeah, Richard Dawkins, he's saying that, you know, this universe has no purpose. Like, is that true? All the arguments I presented so far were just pure analogies, but is there something that could, you know, combat these, these criticisms. Ho well, hopefully, we're not done yet, so. Um, so we're gonna get to kind of the first major shifts in the argument by F.R. Tennant. Uh, this is called The Anthropic Principle. He uh, wrote a book in 1930s called, it's up there, The Philosophical, Philosophical Theology. Uh, anthropic, I should define that, it means man. He said, instead of just organizing this uh, argument based on pure analogy uh, with no life involved. Let's, let's put life in the picture. Let's put humanity in the picture. He had this strong quote, very, very strong quote that really uh, pretty much triggered a lot of scientists. Uh, what? It's like, he said, nature is meaningless and valueless without God behind it and man in front. He said that. Pretty much said humanity is at the forefront of, of creation. We are here and it's not an accident. We are not, life is very, very delicate. And the fact that there's life in this universe is, is something special, he said. Uh, moving in, uh, pretty much describing the argument, said that, uh, and pretty much he said, is, it, it points to this, like, is this, well, I'll talk about that later, but it's, let's go one by one. I just stick on, stay on topic. <laughs> the emergence of human life in this universe. This is how the argument goes. The emergence of life on this universe depends on so many factors that we're going to get into. Um, laws of physics, planetary conditions especially. And, but we see clearly that human, humans are in this universe. Because of that, that means we're in a life-friendly universe. Uh, the claim in this argument is that that is highly improbable. 
uh, it's, these circumstances are so specific, so delicate, that to, if any of them were tweaked, it would be hostile to life. Uh, so from all of this, it suggests that a designer of intelligence uh, behind everything would make the most sense. Versus if this happened by chance, we wouldn't be here. That's pretty much what the argument's saying. And the conclusion is that designer exists. God exists. So it's pretty much that this universe is fine-tuned uh, for life, and that's why we're here. Um, so I, before moving on, we're, we're going to see a lot of physics. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hide it. Uh, it's, so I just want to prepare you guys. It's going to be a lot of math. Uh, I, uh, we're about to go deep, and but I want us to you know see that we want to test this now because now this claim and there's support in terms it, it can be supported with scientific evidence now. The other analogies, the watchmaker analogy, the fifth argument with the arrow, bow and arrow, weren't based on science. But we're going to see if what if this has any merit, you know, and that's what physicists love to do. We love to test things. So we're going to go in. We're going to go in. So we're going to start off with the four fundamental laws of physics in this case. So we have these forces. They're arranged from strongest to smallest, or strongest to weakest, I mean. Uh, we have the strong force, strong nuclear force. It is the strongest force in the universe. Um, it holds protons. We're going to go through each of these individually, too. But this is what's presented with our modern physics right now. We're going to go, what we have right now, what science depends on to describe the universe, we're going to look at that. We're going to put this to the test. Before we go deep, I also want to say let's, let's take all of our assumptions out of this. Let's take all the analogies out. We're going to go pull pure math. Um, so, <laughs> so we have this strong force. Just the electromagnetism, we see that electricity, we have light, everything there. Uh, that number, oops, I forgot to update. It's actually, and what this is saying is that this force is a hundred times weaker than the strong force. So it's all relative to the strong force. Um, actually, that's 137 times weaker. I, I forgot to change that. Then we have the weak nuclear force. That's the actual name is the weak force. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, it's 100,000 times weaker than the strong force. And now we have gravity, which, you know, we're used to gravity because we're big bodies. We're not subatomic. We're kind of big. So we're used to gravity when we fall, we fell because of gravity. And, but if you look at this number, it is a very, very weak force. It's 10 to the 39. That's um, one with 39 zeros behind it. Like divide one by 39 zeros, and that's how much weaker gravity is compared to this force. Um, and then you can, like, think, that, okay, that's one... 37. It's the weakest force. Even though there's a weak force, there's a weak force. But it's so just to t take away any confusion, um, the constants involved in, in these fundamental forces uh, are called, a lot of them are called anthropic constants. These are constants that, if they were adjusted very slightly, uh, it would lead to a radically different universe where life would not exist, pretty much. Um, and I, I don't include a lot of them, but there are actually like a dozen, dozens and dozens of other constants involved. And these constants are things that are observed all the time in, the, in, in physics. Uh, when we study subatomic particles, we see that the, like I, I think the one like the fine structure constant is a specific number. 
for no matter what particle we're looking at, radically different particles from different groups, we see this value. And we, don't, we can't explain why it's that value. Science tries to explain everything. That was my early thinking in college. I was noticing many of these as I went in my upper level classes, uh, and there were no answers to these. Like before, in like basic, you know, nuclear's first laws of motion and stuff, there's a lot of answers for that, you know, force, mass, times acceleration. But now we're getting to the points where science just has val answer values for things, and they don't know why. Um, so, and there's so more, there's like, oh, Okay, okay, the vacuum energy, <laughs> quantum. Oh, uh, let's just go one by one through these. Uh, so first, we're going to strong nuclear force. It's involved a lot in the nucleus, the nuclei of atoms. They hold protons and protons together, they hold protons and neutrons together. Uh, I couldn't find a better picture. These are actually anti-protons. You can tell by the bar on top of them. Um, but they, they, the function is still the same. They hold these particles together. And they're very, they're involved greatly in giant massive stars. They, they go through, a, they're fusion based, um, they're involved a lot. So with this force, there, there are many constants associated with this force that can't be adjusted or the universe as we know it wouldn't be here. Like for instance, uh, and this is testable in physics, this isn't just some extrapolation based on our models, because that's what physics, that's what we rely on at, in these times, our models. We don't really write on a board chalkboards anymore. It's more model-based. We, we build simulations and things like that. So we can test this. If these constants are adjusted such that the nuclear force is like, cut by half, 50% weaker, the universe that started at the Big Bang uh, would have no, it would not have the ability to hold more at, more particles in the nucleus. Like protons would be, would thrive in a universe and the only possible element would be hydrogen because hydrogen is just one proton and one electron like around it. Uh, so it's, it's crazy, like we can see, we can literally test that, we can know that. Um, and if we adjust it slightly, because that might think, oh 50% is a big difference. If we just adjust it by 5%, and a lot of models now suggest, are suggesting that if you tweak it by 2% weaker, uh, the fuel source for stars is deuterium. It's a hydrogen. It's called heavy hydrogen. Hydrogen with a, a, new, a neutron on it, and that's what it uses. It's like the coal for a train or so. That's what it uses to burn. But without that, stars couldn't burn. It'd just be lifeless balls of gas. And we need stars to burn because that's how our elements got here. The current models of physics suggest that anything higher than beryllium, like carbon, uh, neon, all these are up to iron and more came from stars, the, the death of stars, like in the furnace of stars. Uh, so these models suggest that if they don't burn, these elements that will exist might be helium, beryllium, very, very light elements. And that's not good for life. Once again, we're trying to <laughs> apply this argument to the real physics that's involved in this world, and we're, these suggestions are, are real, like science is investigating this. 2% stronger, just 2% stronger with these values. That, once again, these values, we have no idea why they're the way they are in the first place, but 2% stronger, and all the hydrogen in the universe will be converted into helium. Just to put that in perspective, the universe is like three quarters, at the beginning of the Big Bang, it was um, pretty much 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, or 20% helium and 5% uh, other slightly heavier elements. 
So you go from 75% hydrogen to 0% hydrogen. We need hydrogen, like, forget trying to make water, anything like that, that you need. Hydrogen's involved in a lot of life-based activities. Uh, it would be a, a universe uninhabitable by the current way of life that we'd know it. Um, so pretty much in this forest, like, just tweaking it just barely, it, it has little room for um, adjustments, pretty much. Moving on, now we're at the weak nuclear force. This force is involved in a lot of activity. It's involved in um, holding neutrons together. Uh, it's in the process of converting neutrons to protons. It's involved in that. It's in fusion processes. And the star, you can think of it in a star that it's like a dial. And the star, if, like if you're cooking something, the star is cooking. The, the, the weak force controls how long that star burns, pretty much, for, for most common stars. If you tweak this by a few percent weaker, uh, a few, yeah, a few percent weaker, you'll have an all helium universe. Again, we just described how that's not good for us. High voices. Yeah, yeah, a lot of high voices. <laughs> it would make, uh, <laughs> yeah, chemistry class would be slightly different for sure. You wouldn't know ever what hydrogen was unless you created it in the lab, maybe. But uh, like fusion powered stars, uh, because a helium, a helium burning star versus a hydrogen bur burning star, can, is also testable because a helium, a helium burning star is very, very not good for life. Because on the current, based on the current theories of evolution, you need millions upon millions of millions of years to, of of a source like a star to to generate the, the basic life to evolve to the complex, like all that stuff. In this process, fusion power stars they burn too quickly. Their whole lifetime is like, like our sun. And the it, like physics thinks the sun is about five billion years old, 4.6 billion years old. Um, it's a hydrogen burning star. So a helium burning star only lasts for like a few million years. It's not enough time for evolution to happen. Like science says that. So that's why this is not good for them. A uh, few percent stronger, this one. Once again, no hydrogen because in the, in the, the beginning of the universe, this, there's a long reason for that. Um, <laughs> I, I can describe kind of like the Big Bang. When the Big Bang happened, there were a lot of subatomic particles that condensed into uh, protons and neutrons. You can think of it that there's, because protons and neutrons are pretty much almost the same, almost exactly the same size. And uh, so you can think of the universe having just half protons and half neutrons in it. The weak force is crucial because the weak force is involved in converting those, some of those neutrons into protons. So that, once again, hydrogen, there's, hydrogen just is one proton and one electron, which was also in the universe. Uh, you need that process to happen so that there's more protons out, so that there's more hydrogens possible. Without that, if the weak force, if it's um, stronger, it's going to keep those neutrons as neutrons, pretty much. So there's going to be less chances to make hydrogen to the point there's no hydrogen. Um, and once again, because of this, Fusion-powered stars would make life nearly impossible by the basic theories of evolution that suggests life, even if even in the scope of science, takes millions and millions a long time. So we can't change that one either. And this is confusing science. This is scratching their head. Like, why is this? Um, so electromagnetism. Let's talk about that for a little while. It's as we know. We know about that. We see it. We see this because of light, uh, electromagnetism. Um, Pretty much, this is also crucial to life. 
as well. Uh, universe, if, it's, if this force was stronger, it would affect the wavelength of light that came from the star. Also, it would affect the star itself. Um, the star would be a red star because in the star's furnace, all these forces are interacting with each other. So tweaking this force would make it really stronger, really much more stronger than the star. It's going to make it a red star, pretty much. Um, it's going to resist a lot of the forces of the strong and weak force. It's going to make this a red star. If you know in science and astronomy, red stars are very, very cold. Um, don't put out as much energy as a star that we have as the sun. So it's also damaging to life. Um, it's slightly weaker by the same metric we have blue giants because <laughs> it's not weak. It's so weak that it won't be able to overpower the strong um, processes. And, if, and more fusion would happen. You get kind of into more the helium universe situation where you have blue giants. Blue giants are very hot. It's like putting lighter fuel on, on charcoal. You know, it's going to burn quickly and then it's going to go out. You know, that's what these stars are like. It's highly radioactive and they're short-lived. Good luck with any planet being near that star because it's going to have radiation just hitting everything around. It's going to be spewing. It's going to be violent. Um, also, what's crazy is now we get into the ratios of these forces. It's crazy. Now when you combine them together, the electromagnetic force and gravity, you can, that ratio of how strong they are in relation to each other is finely balanced. You cannot, like, like I'm, I, I try to put that in perspective. Like, you can't change that to, this, this is, way smaller than a percentage. It's not like 1%. It's, that's 10 with 40 zeros behind, or 1 with 40 zeros behind it. Um, if you tweaked it slightly, if you tweaked it slightly, if you made electromagnetism stronger by that much, uh, there would be no chance of the matter condensing into what we know as you know, galaxies and stars and planets. The, the force would be too great. This universe would just be a sea of radiation, a sea of radiation, a sea of charge, there would be no way to coalesce anything. Um, so that's a very highly, that's one that science, is, that they're stumped on. Like, why is this? Once again, the one we're most familiar with is gravity. Dominant force in the, on an astronomical size. You need big bodies for, to see it, pretty much. Uh, this force is also crucial because, uh, as we know about the universe, the universe is expanding, as Trevor mentioned with Hubble. He discovered that, and that it also has to be in balance with gravity, because gravity pretty much, on the simplest of terms, pulls things together. The expansion rate, though, is this unknown thing we're still investigating, but it's pushing the universe apart. So this force that brings things together, and that force in the universe that's pulling things apart has to be balanced. Um, like, and it's balanced also on a very, very small scale. If, if it was weaker by this much, if it was weaker by, like, think of that percentage, like 10 to the negative 40, or, like, tweaked, and then you just, the universe would expand too quickly because it couldn't overpower, it couldn't control the expansion rate of the universe. So there you go, no stars, no galaxies, things like that. If it was stronger by this much, the universe would collapse on itself, it would overpower the expansion rate, and we also wouldn't be here. And... Um, so this is a fine-tuning that it needs to be with the rate of expansion. So you, the science, as they go through their current models, what they currently understand about math, physics, they're stumped because they see these processes. 
And many of them believed, as I, saw, I showed you with the criticisms, that this universe just happened by chance. That just occurred randomly. We're just here randomly. Once again, Stephen Hawking and even Richard Dawkins suggested that we're in an ordinary, uh, on an ordinary planet in an ordinary universe. But this, this calls into question how ordinary is this? Like, what does that mean? You know, this, we have, this science wants to know, and they're stumped. We're all super stumped. Oh, okay, this, this is, this one, um, another big stumper is this, because life as we know it, I know a lot of, there's a lot of biologists out there, they could probably help me out, a lot of the, a lot of life is based on carbon. Um, all, pretty, all life you interacts with carbon in some way, uh, and I'll just give you some details. Carbon is like the fourth most abundant element in the universe. There's hydrogen, because the universe was like 75% hydrogen at the beginning of the Big Bang, as science suggested. So there's still a whole ton of hydrogen around. Then it's helium, then oxygen, and then carbon. But as carbon is really, really difficult to construct, it's really difficult to make. It's, this process not only depends on one force, which is these interactions involved are uh, kind of th the nuclear force in action. The nuclear forces that action, like fusion happening. Uh, two helium uh, atoms smashing together to make beryllium. Uh, it's called, and it's, I, oh, I didn't name it. Oh, it's the triple action process, triple alpha process. These are alpha particles in nuclear physics. Helium is pretty much alpha particles. You could think of it that way. It's triple because three heliums are involved. They, they create beryllium, and then they, then they smash this with another helium to create carbon. Uh, this process not only depends on the nuclear forces involved so that fusion can occur, and inst instead of just a proton just flying away, but it also depends on the energy states of each of these atoms, and that's electromagnetism. Like, in this, for this process to occur, the nuclear force has to be tuned to 0.5%, and electromagnetism has to be tuned to 4%. If either of those are adjusted, if, there's, if you adjust the force of the, uh, the nuclear force, um, this process wouldn't, wouldn't want to happen. Or, if, or actually, it would make uh, carbon highly unstable, uh, and carbon would just decay into another element. Like beryllium. You would think that beryllium is common in the universe. It's not. Beryllium is very, very not common. This is, and also, this occurs in stars. This whole process occurs in stars. So you need stars, too. But um, this process, I'll just read uh, some of the stats about this. Because this one very stumped a lot of people, even atheist scientists who studied stellar nucleosynthesis, which is what this is, the uh, study of how elements were born from stars, pretty much. Uh, it's like altering, any, altering the special relationship between the nuclear force and electromagnetism. If you adjust it, if you increase it, if you increase the strong force, for instance, like all the carbon uh, no longer be stable, it would burn, it would become straight oxygen. Uh, and then oxygen would be way more abundant, carbon would be least abundant, it would, hardly any in the universe. If you decrease the strong force any, it would prevent this reaction from taking place in the first place. You, you need highly, it's, everything has to be just right for this process to take place. You need them to be in a, at a certain energy, and at this small scale, energy's not continuous. It's 
Like, we think quantum physics because energy is quantized. Like, they have to be a certain value, and if they're not, this, this won't take place, practically. And this process, it stunk people. It stunk people. They're, like, science are still trying to discover why this is going on. There's a, a scientist um, in the, uh, yeah, I guess, last century, his name was Fred Hoyle, who st he discovered this. Because they wanted to see, like, how is, car how is there so much carbon in the universe? It's not meant to be made. Natu naturally, it's so hard to make it. How is it? in the universe, and only in these conditions in a certain type of star. And he said that, he's an atheist too, by the way, super atheist, but he said, even he suggested that, this is crazy, it seemed like someone, someone monkeyed with the physics. <laughs> That's his quote. Someone monkeyed, something, something tempered with what we know of physics right now. Because this is insane. Uh, but he still was a, a full-on atheist, but he is not to go on a tangent, but he, 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 he hated the theory of evolution because he was like, how can you believe? Never, I, won't, I know some people don't like analogies, but it's like he's the one who presented like, the analogy that if protein was formed from amino acids, that's the equivalent of the, the, the plane in the junkyard. I, I know some people don't like that analogy uh, of creating a Boeing 747 from a junkyard. If a tornado hit it, oh, a plane is born. Like, that's his rationale. It, just to make it sense that it's highly... The statistics, the probability is so low of that happening. But he was stumped on this, and physics is still stumped. Uh, okay, this is what gets crazy. Because um, we're, we're thinking of um, the universe, you know, and the, the laws that took place. And let, but let's consider our, 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 our planet, pretty much. There are so many factors that are at play with us living right now, us being here, as we understand life. This planet has, you know, good temperatures. It varies properly so that life can happen, cycles can happen. A lot of water, atmosphere is important. Oxygen is very important. Can't tweak that any. Mass, the crust uh, that allows cycles to occur is also very important. Our, so our distance to the sun is extremely important. I'm, I'm, I'm briefly going through those because I really wanted to get to this, this experiment in a simulation that was very recent, actually, in 2016. I actually did, I read this journal because I was like stunned, I was like shocked. I was like, wait, what? Uh, so this Swedish astrophysicist, uh, Eric Zakrinson, his team wanted to simulate the, the universe because, uh, as you know, there's a lot of planets we're detecting from you know, these telescopes that are in space. We, we found like maybe 30, might be even at 40 exoplanets, they call them, planets that are orbiting other stars. With that information, this scientist wanted to include that information, that data we collected from those findings in our universe, combine that with all the laws of physics that I provided you guys, and he wanted to simulate from the beginning of the Big Bang to now. He wanted to see how many stars, how many planets are like or like ours, pretty much. So uh, he, he went about doing this. He had a supercomputer to run this, this simulation. And he found that there's, uh, for one, there's 700 quintillion planets created or, or suggested by this model. Quintillion is 700 quintillion, seven with 20 zeros behind it. Um, but here's the kicker. Here's the crazy thing about this. He says. In his simulation, based on using the latest and greatest from physics 
And what we're noticing about exoplanets, he couldn't find a planet like Earth. He couldn't find a planet that had the basic composition of Earth. It doesn't have to be exactly like Earth, but it had to... We, we know, based since we're on Earth, we know what life, what life needs. And he didn't find a planet that had those conditions. It was, it was crazy. I have uh, pretty much this, the findings he found. He, um, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just bring, he, he found planets that just were, were orbiting stars that aren't, are not like the sun, pretty much. Stars that need to be like the sun uh, so that they burn. Our sun burns at a certain rate because it's a certain type of star. Uh, like the stars he had in his, his simulation were not, were not like that. The planets he found were not like that. They were kind of super-Earths, pretty much. Multiple masses uh, and highly different compositions. And he was stumped by that, because this is using the latest and greatest and using a you know, simulation. This, this is an accredited journal. I promise this isn't some pseudo-physics journal. This is a pretty, pretty good one. Um, and he had this quote, because I, I mentioned the mediocrity principle, which suggests that this universe is so big, so surely there should be Earth-like planets around. Like, it's surely. Like, I think it, it's, it makes sense to think that. But based on the most we know right now, he says that this, this finding means trouble for that principle. Uh, we have to accept that this, we might have had an unlikely lottery draw with our Earth. Um, it's kind of like what, what Justin said earlier. We, we think we know a lot with physics, but we, we don't. <laughs> we, we hardly know. The, the more we discover, the more we find that we need to know more, or we, or we don't know enough. Um, but I, I include this study because it's just, and this was only two years ago. This stu- it was shocking. Um, it's using the most simulation. I'm like, this is a credit. This is what science does now. They, they build simulations. Um, and we can't even find a planet like Earth. But even if he did, even if he found one, th- that doesn't suggest that a designer is not real. Once again, this argument is trying to, you know, suggest that this universe has the capabilities of supporting life. Um, but I include that because that's just, that's just insane to me. And uh, once again, in his study, uh, pretty much w- we find that we're even more special because Activity like this is going on in the universe all the time, like supernova, violent radiation that comes from that, um, spreading throughout many solar systems and things like that. That's harmful. We don't have to worry about that. Gamma ray bursts, gamma ray bursts, where uh, you know that that's life killing immediately. Um, you know all of these cosmic rays, um, comet. <laughs> uh, we have bodies. We have Jupiter in our solar system that attracts comets right now, or, or meteors, which is good for us. Um, and just all, all other effects like this. This is it's showing that, okay, at least poses the question that this universe is it's not ordinary, based on what we think of ordinary. Um, so, like in a summary, we, they try to combine all of these cases into one big uh, probability at the end, and it's, I, I didn't include one because I saw something, they, they, they vary diff- vastly, uh, the probability of a universe like ours happening, because, you know, the common men- mentality with science is that there's like a multiverse or things like that. They use that to try to explain what we're noticing here, and even based on that, we're saying, well, w- even with that model, let's try to see how many of those universes would be like ours, 
And the answer is very, very high. It's like, no, very, very low. The probability is very, very low of finding one like this. Like, uh, I, I found one where the probability was like 1 over 10 to 100. 10, that's one with 100 zeros behind it. It's very, very small, um, so small that I had to bring up the uh, statistical improbability. When values get lower than this, it's pretty much impossible. At least that's what's considered in mathematics. That value is really, really small. Um, I don't even try to picture that. It's like these, I brought up a sand dune because I have statistics like the uh, amount of sand on a universe, I mean, the amount of sand in, on Earth can be estimated to be about like eight times times 10 to the 18 uh, amount of stars in the universe is like about 7 times 10 to the 23, 24. Um, like, so even, I'll give it 20, I'll give it, I'll round it up to 30. It's still not big enough, because it's like the odds of like picking one out of all of that. It's, 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 it's just highly unlikely. And I didn't even bring up all the other criticisms I had, because in my life, I was, I was down with physics for a while, but then as I went in my upper classes, I just discovered that we don't really know a lot. Like one thing in our model, I brought up the standard model, I think, and that standard model suggests that at the beginning of the Big Bang, there was equal amounts of regular matter and antimatter. Yet, as we see now, as we observe in the universe, where's the antimatter? And that, that's something that, that gets me. I'm like, where is it? Our model, our best model right now, can't, can't, can't tell us where that matter went. We need that. That, that antimatter is so crucial to the model. Where is it in the universe? I'm like, the amount of positive and negative charges are balanced in the universe, but what about matter antimatter? I don't know, that gets me. And then we have to come to grips with what we don't know. My senior year of high school, I did a uh, senior project on, on dark matter. So I made a little booklet, Dark Matter for Dummies. Uh, and I, it was just shocking. The more I read, I was like, what? We don't know like hardly anything. The matter we see in space, you know this universe? It's estimated that we only 5% of the things in space is actual matter that we're aware of, like, or that we classify as matter. Uh, that's 5%. That means that, and I have the other, like 27% of the universe is like dark matter. Science, scientists call it dark matter because we don't know what it is. So just call it dark. We just call it name. And 68% is this dark energy that's in a lot of galaxies. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know why it's there. 68% of the universe has this stuff in it that's unidentifiable, stumps our models. They're you know, trying hard to answer that. And it's just mind-blowing that only 5%. We can only, pretty much we only can explain 5% of the universe. And with that 5%, this is as best as we can do. Still not addressing the antimatter, but. Um, uh, so it's pretty much what are we to make of this? This is pretty much a pre a presenting what we currently know about the situation. Um, try hard to include as much as I, I could in this in the amount of time we have. But think about it as this, as simply as this. I said earlier how I hope this message will help you to think about why, why believe in a creator, something that created this universe, you know? Um, and I hope I presented properly that this universe is special. You have to admit that something's going on with this. Like, that we're in a universe that has all of these parameters that are tweaked and specially designed. They're not just arbitrary. They need to be those values. Why is that? 
And and then with our planet, why are we? Why and it, it posed like, why are we here? Why are orbiting the right star, the right planet? We're seeing more and more as we learn about um, stellar biology, what's needed for life in the universe. That the the conditions are constantly being added to. Well, how is it just right for us to be here? How do we have intelligent life? And what do you what do you think? And I I do include that this one scripture because I thought it was really interesting that. Um, it says the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Amen. Um, so that's my part. <laughs> Only 30 more slides. <laughs> You're laughing, like, hoping that I'm not telling you. This is the last slide. I bet you didn't know when you came to church today that you were going to learn about stellar nucleosynthesis. But I can say you know it. But you did. Now, I don't know where you're at right now with your spiritual religious journey. Uh, I know there are a lot of people in here studying the Bible. Um, there are probably people in here that are we're like me, are atheists and not. Maybe, maybe you're going to start asking yourself these questions now. But I really just want to, want to share with you and again reiterate that, that what we're hoping to do today is not to, not to change your mind but to inspire you to ask yourselves the questions that I believe and that we believe everyone should answer about, is there a creator, is there a God, and then get those questions answered. Um, and I just want to leave you with this again. Are you convinced that what you believe is true? Thank you. Wow, guys, uh, I feel smarter right now. <laughs> Uh, I just want to say thank you so much to Justin, Iggy, and Trevor for an incredible presentation. Really amazing. Um, you know, there's so much to chew on. We are recording this, which is great. Uh, so we'll have this up on our website if you want to review it. I didn't catch everything. Believe me. Um, and I love science. But, um, you know, uh, I do think for us to contemplate these things is important. I want to encourage everyone to get coffee with someone and talk about this. Talk about it with someone, you know. And for me, I, too, realize that uh, we, we know so little, but, but there's a lot to be known in, in God's Word. And I want to encourage you to, you know, to, to get into that, to at least learn about it. For me, I just decided I wanted to get in because I didn't want to be ignorant about the Bible. I said, I know nothing about this book. People ask me questions all the time. I don't know anything about this. I need to know at least a little bit about it. So let's get together and talk. And, and it was an amazing decision because it's changed my life. Um, so uh, with that, I'm going to say a prayer. And then someone is convinced of what they believe. And Sarah is going to be baptized. Amen? Hey. So um, let's, let's say a prayer. And, uh, and then we'll invite the women up. Father in heaven, we're grateful that of just your incredible intelligence, Lord, the design that you've made, God. I stand in awe of you, Father, because of all the ways that you show yourself to be true, God, in the statistical probability of how can this all come from chance. Lord, this creation is not ordinary, Lord. It's extraordinary. It is beyond comprehension. If it was ordinary, we would know more than 5%. God, if it was ordinary, we would be able to explain even the 5% in which we can't. Father, if it was just ordinary, Lord, uh, we would not even be here because we could not explain why we're here, Father. 
thank you so much for this time to dig into science and, and, and your creation. Lord, we just want to praise you. Because even though we don't know a lot, what we do know makes us stand in awe of you. Thank you so much for creating us and making us, uh, giving us a planet. I mean, I, I don't normally thank you for the planet, but giving us a planet that is just right uh, for us to live on, Lord. And, and God, we know that uh, you've kept it that way for a while so that we can get to know you. You did it for a reason, and we pray that everyone in this room can take advantage of that blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen guys. Invite the uh, women to come up. Sarah Gantz is going to be baptized. All right. <laughs> water is water.